After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what, is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, Judah, actually, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his father. And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is God's word. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Kaya. All right. Here we go. Put on a different hat. No. <laughs> Here we go. We ready? I keep saying that every week, but we got, we got a lot of ground to cover this morning and just enough time to do it, so here we go. Uh, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel according to Matthew, and there are a few things that are worth repeating right up front. That is that Matthew wants to introduce us to Jesus. And so in our pursuit, in our, in our seeking, in our looking at the scripture, if we don't find Jesus, we have missed the point. We want to find Jesus. And not just find him intellectually, as we'll see through this story, but we want to find him in a way that leads us to worship, leads us to worship. And Matthew wants us to know Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He wants us to know about his birth, his life, his teaching, his miracles, his death and his resurrection. And he wants us to know that at the very end of the book, he commissioned us to do something, that we aren't just bystanders on the sideline who get to sit this out and cheer for others. We are commissioned into the calling with Christ to go into the world and preach the gospel. The beginning and the end of a book are really important. And so how an author chooses to begin a book and how an author chooses to end it says something about what he's trying to communicate. Well, Matthew, he begins by showing us that Jesus is truly human and truly God, as we talked about last week, that there are two natures within this one person, and they're inseparable and they're unique. And therefore, through the incarnation, through Christ and the, the conception by the Holy Spirit through Mary, that in that incarnation, we have Emmanuel, God with us. God is spirit, God cannot die. But Jesus, in his humanity, and the nature of God can, and therefore he can shoulder the weight of our sin and our burden and go all the way and pay the ultimate cost for us. 
We need an Emmanuel. We need God with us. And Matthew wants us to know at the very beginning, God with us in Christ Jesus. And so how does Matthew then end his book? Well, the very last lines are the words of Jesus. And Jesus says to you and I, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God with us, Emmanuel, even today. God is still with us in Christ. And through the presence of the Holy Spirit, as we talked about Pentecost Sunday being next week, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in each and every single believer, we carry with us Emmanuel, God with us, the Spirit of Christ. Each person in their own time and in their own place must answer the question of how you will respond to this Emmanuel, God with us. The passage that we read and we'll examine today that Kaya read, um, is all about that. And my opening question to you is, how will you respond today? How will you respond? I want you to be thinking about that as we, as we move forward. We'll get to see that there are two wildly different responses to this miraculous truth of God with us. Two wildly different responses. And so let's set the stage now. Let's get a little bit of that background information. I love the background information. I love the context. So what's going on? Where are we right now? Well, we're, we're in an area called Judea. An area called Judea that is a part of the greater Roman Empire. Rome has come along and has taken a lot of territory. At this time, they, they own a lot of the known world. And therefore, the, the, the area of Judea is actually ruled by an emperor. And this emperor, he's the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Up till that point, they were a republic. But after this point, they will have a long string of emperors and most of them will be very, very nasty to Christians. Do very, very terrible things. But here we have the first and his name was Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is emperor of the Roman Empire. He is the first in line of emperor, and he's arguably the greatest emperor ever for the Roman Empire. And as a result of his rule, Rome has entered into roughly 200-year period of relative peace within the empire. No, no uh, you know, uh, hordes of other nations coming in or, or barbarians coming in and attacking. Instead, he's created a place of peace now, he's done it, obviously, by beating down his opponents and rendering them unable to attack the Roman Empire anymore. But the people now honor Augustus as the one who brought peace. To them, he's the king of peace. And so he takes a title that's called the Pontifus Maximus. Pontifex Maximus, and it makes him basically the pope of all of the Roman Empire. He is the head of all religious experiences throughout the, the Roman Empire. He's the top dog. The people believe that he was indwelled with the divine spirit and the power to rule. And as, as a result of that divine spirit, that's why they're experiencing peace. And in fact, this is crazy. There's an inscription that they've found that was marking Caesar Augustus's birthday. And on that inscription, it calls Caesar Augustus the God Caesar Augustus. So they elevate him to a level of deity. But then after that, it, it says, the God Augustus 
was the beginning of the gospel for the word that came by reason of him. Caesar Augustus was the beginning or the genesis of the gospel, the good news for the world that came by reason of him. Remember, he created peace for them. He created this this sense of security as a Roman empire. And if you were a Roman citizen, you had this sense of security. He created this network of roads and, and traveling. And with that peace, you could move throughout the known world or the conquered world easily. And so people saw Augustus and what he had done as a gospel, a good news, the gospel of Augustus, the God Augustus, and the great tidings that would come with this world that he brought by reason of him, himself. And all of these words are direct ties to things in the scripture. We know the gospel word, right? But by reason of himself, that's the word logos, which in in the beginning of John is, in the beginning, the word, right? Jesus was the word, the logos. And this inscription is ascribing all of these titles to Caesar Augustus. Now think about it, Caesar is worshiped as the bringer of peace and stability, salvation more or less to the the nation for the people of the empire. And and he he is the gospel that is being preached throughout the Western world, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And into that world, a baby is born. Into that world, a helpless baby is born. And when that baby is around 10 years old, the great God Augustus dies. He dies and his rule and reign is over. And his stepson takes his place in a long line of emperors. But that human baby with a human and divine nature will grow up. And the gospel that he brings, well, it will undermine the very fabric of the Roman Empire end of the world. It'll tear everything apart. And in the first verse of chapter two of Matthew, we're introduced to this player, this other player named King Herod. Now, King Herod, he was appointed by the Romans and by the Roman Senate to be the regional governor of Judea. He he governs the the area that Christ is going to be born in. And in fact, he he, he took on the title of king himself. Like He wanted to make sure that he established his throne and his rule, so he took on this title of king for the area, and he was actually known as king of the Jews. King of the Jews. Herod, king of the Jews. Doesn't that spark a little bit of interest in your mind too? When you think about some other passages in the, in the Bible where we hear, this one included, that there's another king of the Jews that's being talked about? What was above Jesus' cross when he was crucified? said he was king of the Jews, right? Well, he had taken on this title. He's the king of the Jews. But he was not the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He was an Edomite, actually. He wasn't even Israeli or an Israelite. And therefore, he had no claim to the throne. He was a puppet king set up by Rome. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about his life next week because he does some pretty nasty things in the scripture that we cover next week. But a group of wise men come to the area, and who are they looking for? They're looking for the king of the Jews. 
But not the king of the Jews, not the one who took the title king of the Jews, Herod. They come to town and they're looking for someone who was born, just born the king of the Jews. This, this passage sets up this contrast. We talked about it at the beginning. It's a contrast between how two groups of people will respond to this reality breaking into their worlds. For those who are the, the Bible nerds here, the big idea here, if you wanna look at the Bible and go, oh, this, I'm supposed to see something here. The big idea here is that the two groups, they're not responding the way that you expect them to. And that's important. That's supposed to draw our attention to the word. Draw us and make us question, why? Why aren't they responding the way they're supposed to? Two groups that should respond. One should respond this way. One should respond this way. One are the people of God. One are, is a pagan puppet king, right? I mean, one is, and, and he claims to be the people of God. And then you've got this other group, the magi, who come on the scene, or the wise men. And they're responding in a completely different way. And that's a standard device, a literary device being employed to get us to, to stop and think deeply about the scripture in front of us. The supposed people of God, including Herod, who claims the title of king of the Jews, are responding like pagans, unbelievers. This news comes, this great news of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah, his birth comes, and he's responding like an unbeliever. And then you have the pagan unbelievers, the wise men from the east who come and they're responding the way that the people of God are supposed to respond. And when I say pagan, what do I mean? Well, these, these are wise men from the east and from the east was just a, a biblical a figure of speech which meant that they were from the Persian Babylonia area. They were from Persia or Babylonia. And who are they? Well, you guys, we've been around Christmas enough, right? We've got a few, few ideas of who these wise men are, right? How many are there? Three, right? We three kings, right? And, and they're called kings, and, and they come bearing gifts. And sometime, like a 300, 400, 500 years ago, some, uh, someone gave them names. I, I can't even pronounce them. They're really weird. They're not actually their names. But. but in this particular translation, the CSB, we have them called wise men. But the Greek word that's used there is the word magi. And you've probably heard that word also associated with them. And that's the same Greek word that's at the root of the word magic or magician. Magi, magic or magician. And basically, this, these people who have come, they're skilled astronomers and astrologers. And what we know about this group that has come to seek out this king is that they were a, a part of a hereditary tribe of priests. And they date way back, back to the time of Abraham. Back to the time of Abraham, they were uh, involved in these cultic rituals that looked at the stars and the sky and tried to determine the future, tried to determine what was going on around them. And so they were very much so wrapped up in pagan sorcery and idolatry through the worship of the stars and astrology, looking to the stars for their answer. And they go back thousands of years before Christ was ever born. They were in the Babylon area and they were a part of the Medo-Persian empire when they came in and conquered Babylon. And because they were high-ranking officials within Babylon, when the Medo-Persians came in and conquered Babylon, well, guess what? They just got kind of absorbed into the system and continued to have this high position within 
the political scene. They were very important. They were on all the councils. They had decision-making power. And another interesting fact about these magi or wise men is that there are records from around the time of Jesus that the magi were so high-ranking in the, the Persian empire of the time that their approval was required for the appointment of any new king in the east. There were, they were the final say. They had to say, or, and, and then they also had to engage in the actual appointment of the king or what we would think of anointing through the Bible. They were, in essence, kingmakers. They were kingmakers. And so imagine that. This group of kingmakers from the east comes into town looking for a king. And looking for a king by the title that you hold, <laughs> king of the Jews. But they're looking for a one that was born king of the Jews, not you. And everyone in the region knows about these kingmaker, this kingmaker group called the Magi. In fact, the people of God know it very well because Daniel, in the book of Daniel, when he was taken off into exile with the people of God, he got really acquainted because he became a high-ranking official. So high that in, in chapter 11 of Daniel, we're told that Daniel was put chief over the Magi. Daniel became the boss over the magicians and the astrologers and the diviners. He was their head. Belshazzar, or Nebuchadnezzar, appointed a head. And we find that out when Belshazzar sees this disembodied hand writing on the wall and no one can figure out what it means. No one knows what's being written. And here's an interesting thought. Maybe all the way back in Daniel, some four, five hundred, six hundred years before Jesus, Daniel was put into exile to rise in the ranks, to sit at the table, to become chief over the Magi. And isn't it possible, we understand now that the Jewish culture and the Jewish teachings of the Torah sunk deep into the Babylonian culture and they learned much about it. Is it possible that Daniel planted seeds of this Messiah, this one that is to be looked for and waited for in the minds of the Babylonians and then the Persians and the Magi. How did the Magi of Jesus' time know that there was a Jewish Messiah? Had they been instructed or influenced by the Jewish scriptures? Had Daniel and other Jewish captives more than 400 years prior shared the scriptures with them concerning the future arrival of the Messiah King? Is it possible that when the Magi were unable to interpret the, gene, uh, the dream that Belshazzar had, or the, the writing on the wall, his, his queen, his wife, comes in and says, I know a man that Nebuchadnezzar had appointed ruler over the Magi. His name is Daniel. What if we get him in here? And they bring Daniel in, and he interprets the, he interprets the writing. And, he, he is, and he's given you know, a position and, and place within the empire. And everyone begins to look to him and maybe he has something to say. Maybe he has something to teach us. And so I want to just point that out because God is sovereign over time and history. And we don't know what he was putting in place to get us to this point in Matthew 2. But it appears that he was doing work well in advance to get the Magi there at this point in time to worship this new king. So we're told in the scripture that the Magi roll into town and they start asking questions. And these questions get all the way up to Herod. 
And we're told that Herod and all of Jerusalem was deeply disturbed. Now that doesn't make sense if you have the, the Christmas caricature of three kings rolling in, does it? Three dudes stroll into a city somewhere between 50,000 and 150,000 population and they start asking some questions. That doesn't stir up a whole city. And part of it is because based upon what we know archaeologically and, and historically, uh, it was not three guys. That, that's a Christmas card. That's, that's not the story here. Most likely it was 10, 20, 70 magi who all came into town and they probably came with an entire division of guards as they were, they were used to doing. And they not only came in with a whole division of guards and many, many, you know, tens of, of magi, but also they would be riding on Persian horses, beautiful Persian horses that were not seen in this area. And so my point is it was a spectacle. It was disruptive. They came in and everyone knew them to be the magi from the east. Everyone knew them to be the kingmaker. And this great stability and peace that Caesar had brought through his governors, they're, they're coming to disrupt it. They're coming to make trouble. They're coming, from Herod's perspective, to take my power, to steal away from me what's mine. And if you know the story of Herod, he fought really hard to keep it. But only a short time after this, after Christ, he lost it big. Here they come into town, following a star. We don't have time to go down the star road, but just write in your bulletins, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Numbers 24, verse 17. You have a prophecy in Numbers 24 from Balaam about a star that will rise in Jacob. And is it possible the Magi knew that and looked to the heavens for that star? The Magi come to worship this newborn king of the Jews. They want to know where he is and probably assume that everyone in town would know about it and is talking about it. Where's all the hubbub over this new king that was born? But no one is. The, the pagan astro astrologers have followed a miraculous star from the east and have come to see this messianic king and bring offerings of worship. And Herod, the king of the Jews, has no idea where the Messiah is even supposed to be born. The king of the Jews doesn't know where the Messiah is to be born. He has to gather in the chief priests and the scribes. In other words, he doesn't know his Bible. And the chief priests and scribes say, hey, there's a prophecy. It was spoken in the Old Testament. Remember Matthew's big on this was said to fulfill, and he's gonna draw in the Old Testament passage. It says, there was a prophecy that said it's in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, six miles south of Jerusalem, a really podunk town, small, insignificant, nothing of importance except that another king was born there. And this ties Jesus to him, King David. King David was born there. King David was anointed there. And so we're supposed to see the connection Jesus and David. And here's where we see that people are not acting the way they're supposed to. If this is actually Messiah, if this is actually Messiah King, 
then he is the hope and the peace of all of Israel. He is what they have longed for. He is who they cried out for when they were in prison, in exile, over and over again, crying out for God to rescue them. Send the anointed one. Set us free. Herod, though, is disturbed. The chief priests, well, they know the scripture passage, but we see no movement on their heart to worship this king. None. And what that tells you is that both Herod and the chief priests, the people who are supposed to represent the word of God to the people, they have sworn the heart's allegiance to another gospel of peace, one from Caesar Augustus. And this king, born in Bethlehem, he's just disruptive. He's just going to ruin the peace. How sad. Jesus right before them, the Messiah, the hope of the nation, they can't see it. Only the Gentile, the Magi, the unbelieving nation sees the star and says, we have to set out. We gotta get going. And no, you probably heard it before, but they don't come up on a baby in a manger. Not this story, that's another one. Those are shepherds. Magi come of probably a young toddler year and a half to three years, four years, somewhere in that range, who uh, is with his mom. Have you ever seen this before in your own life? Let's try to bring it a little bit closer to home. Have you ever seen, maybe you've experienced it yourself, someone who claims Christ in their heart and has claimed Christ for decades And they've read the Bible front to back many times. And they know all the stories and they have a deep intellectual understanding of the faith. But they are no longer moved by the reality of Jesus, who he is, no longer moved to the place of worship. No longer are they moved to seek the scriptures in order to know the king. They wanna know the scriptures so they can manage the king so they can keep him in the box. They can do it at the proper time, the proper time being the 30 minutes on a Sunday morning when someone else teaches them the word. But they don't wanna be moved or changed by it and they're not seeking the savior in the word of God, moved to worship when they find him, moved to all of life worship, moved to set out into risky territory. I mean, imagine that, that group of people moving across toward Jerusalem. At that day and time, that could have started a war. That could have been the end of them. Rome could have come down and clamped down. That's the other thing uh, that, that I didn't touch on, but in Persia, their king has been deposed. They have no king. And the writings of that time, they're looking for a king who will come and help them overthrow Rome. And so the Magi might be coming going, are you the one? In a sense, very similar to how the disciples responded to Jesus. Are you going to overthrow Rome now? That's what we want. But the scripture gives us a glimpse into knowing who Christ is and then knowing Christ through our response of worship. 
the one who is no longer compelled to set out from the comforts of their life to find Christ. No longer to search the scriptures. And when they do find him, no longer worshiping with exceeding joy. It says that these, these kingmakers, these politically astute people, when they find Jesus, what does it say? They fall to their knees, exceeding joy, and worship him. Do we fear bowing our life to the Lord Jesus Christ and let him be sovereign over our life? Do we favor a life that can manage Jesus, keep him tame and in line with our own desires and our own ambitions? The Magi set out to seek this king and they were rewarded with his presence And when they found him, they worshiped and they honored him. And then we're told that they went their own way after being warned in a dream not to play Herod's game. Because we weren't told in this scripture that Herod was playing something, but we are told in the next few that he intends to kill Jesus. He wants him out of the way. He doesn't want another king of the Jews. John chapter one, verse 10 through 13 says this, just listen. John 1, 10 through 13, talking about Jesus. He was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of men, but of God. The people of God, the Jewish people were to receive their king and they did not. But these from far away came to honor and they were received. And I believe like many, that they were God-fearers who left followers of Christ in their own day and time with what they knew so far, at least, of the gospel. And I'm sure when they heard of this Jesus dying upon the cross and rising from the dead, that their hearts swelled with even more joyful, hopeful worship. The chief priests and the scribes in this passage, they knew the scriptures. You guys know the scriptures? You've read them? They knew the scriptures too, but they were not moved to worship. And as a result, they forfeited knowing their king. Does your knowledge of truth move you to worship? Does your knowledge of truth move you to worship? If it doesn't, it's useless. It's useless. You can spend all night long studying the depths of scripture and know doctrine inside and out. But if it does not move you to worship, it is nothing. It is pointless. Every one of us, when faced with the kingship of Jesus, will have the same choice. And this is our choice today. Will we seek him and worship him? Or will we reject and put him out?
And I pray that we choose today to seek and worship as our brothers, the Magi, (laughs) sought him out as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. I pray that your word would transform us and renew us from within. We don't rely only upon our ability to understand it and move ourselves to worship, but we are moved when the Holy Spirit and you illuminate our minds and our hearts to see the truth of your word. And so, Lord, it does not rely only upon us to find the particular application, but upon you, Lord, we ask, Spirit, move us to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth, the kind of worshipers the Father wants. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.